voyant par chez nous, se sont fait rendez-vous. Ils sont réunis ensemble pour un voyage à entreprendre. Oh oui donc, faites vos sacs pour partir pour le Klondike. Quand le train est arrivé, le conducteur est débarqué. Il dit à nos voyageurs... Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I look at about 100 pages of the writings of great American authors while giving my comments and some historical perspective and some of my ideas on them. That's the format. That's what I do here. So currently, we're looking at Jack London's The Seawolf. Uh, I encourage you, if you're just joining us, to come back to, and look at the previous, listen to the previous two episodes about The Seawolf, or even go back and, and check out this entire series on Jack London, which is quickly now coming to a close. Um, so in the first two episodes on the Seawolf, I looked at two of the major characters, the two male uh, protagonists. Um, well, one's a protagonist, one's the antagonist, but depending on how you look at it, uh, one character or the other is driving the plot at various times in the story. So the first episode, we looked at Wolf Larsen, the captain of the ghost, the sealing um, ship in which most of this novel takes place. And the second we looked at the narrator of the story, Humphrey Van Wyden, or just as Wolf Larsen often calls him, Humph. And we, I used these two characters to look at two different sides of, of social Darwinism. This book is a critique on the Nietzschean Superman and a lot of social Darwin, Darwinism, something Jack London did throughout his career, critiqued individualism. Um, and Wolf Larsen is supposed to be not an admirable character, um, but he's such a strong force of will that he often overshadows the other people in in the narrative, and I and I, I deal with that. But I also deal with Humphrey Van Wyden, the narrator, who really does mature as someone who's able to move the plot and be a force of resistance against um, Wolf Larsen. Now, this final part, we're going to look at the one female character we have in the story, Maud Brewster. And so let me start a quote about her. This is after Humphrey Van Wyden and Maud Brewster leave the ghost. And they're basically at sea. And they don't know what's going to happen to them. He's hoping he can navigate maybe to Japan or, or to some other safety. And they end up falling, getting to an island. But this is what he writes as, when he's with her. This is what the narrator says. And ever I loved Maud with an increasing love. She was so many-sided, so many-mooded, protein-mooded, I called her. But I called her this and other things and dearer things in my thoughts only. Through the declaration of my love urged and trembled on my tongue a thousand times, I knew that it was no time for such a declaration. If for no other reason, it was there was no time. When one was protecting and trying to save a woman, to ask that woman for her love, delicate as it was the situation, not alone in this but in other ways, I flattered myself that I was able to deal delicately with it. And I also flattered myself that by look or sign, I gave no advertisement of the love I felt for her. We were like good comrades and we knew better com and we grew better comrades as the days went on. One thing about her which surprised me was her lack of timidity and fear. The terrible sea, the frail boat, the storms, the suffering, the strangeness and isolation of the situation. All that should have frightened a robust woman. Seemed to make no impression upon her who was known who had known life only in its most sheltered and consummately artificial aspects, and who was herself all fire and dew and mist, sublime spirit, all that was soft and tender and clinging in woman. 
and yet I am wrong. She was timid and afraid, but she possessed courage. The flesh of her qualms and her flesh she was heir to, but the flesh bore heavily only on the flesh. She, and she was spirit first, and now we spirit. Ether, etherealized essence of life. Calm in her calm eyes and sure of permanence in the changing order of the universe. And, end quote. This is a very long description of Maud Brewster, and we see this conflict in the narrator and even how to describe her. And one thing I do want to argue in this episode is that Maud Brewster is yet another possible candidate for for the Superman here, and for and for a period in this novel, she is the protagonist. She is the one who drives up drives the narrative. So um, I'm going to finish up my comments on the Seawolf, and then. Um, uh, finish up with some thoughts on Maude Brewster, give some overall themes I think are important in this novel, and then we'll, we'll wrap up uh, this novel by Jack London. Um, so first, let's summarize the rest of the book for those of you who have not read or have forgotten The Sea Wolf. So chapter 27, Maude Brewster and Van Wyden have left the ghost and are at sea in a boat, and they're uncertain of their future. Van Wyden, who has stolen Larson's sextant, this was actually a sextant Wolf Larson made by himself, like his own invention, and he's able to use that to navigate fairly well. Van Wyden has emerged from his fear through this act of will of running away from the ship and from the man who has dominated him throughout much of the novel. And we see here, here at this point, he, he admits he overcomes the fear he felt on the ship. The death which Wolf Larson and even Tomridge Mugridge had made me fear I no longer feared. The coming of Maud Brewster into my life seemed to have transformed me. After all, I thought, it is better and finer to love than to be loved. If it makes something in life so worthwhile that one is not loath to die for it. I forgot that my life in the love of another life, and yet such is the paradox. I never wanted so much to live as right now when I place the least value upon my own life. And um, So here we got... You know, like in the opening quote I gave, evidence that it's Maude Brewster, something about her personality, maybe it's just her beauty, but it seems to be much more than that, that's driving Van Wyden to risk his life, to assert his independence from people. And in fact, when we when Maude Brewster joins the ship, Van Wyden had already more or less accepted the domination of Wolf Larsen and was not really a candidate for resistance. He was actually becoming one of Wolf Larsen's um, lackeys. And that's changed by now, and this act of independence is a good moment, but it's brought on by, by Brewster. Chapter 28. They're at sea for most of this chapter. Van Wyden's falling increasingly in love with, with Maud. They eventually, though, find an Alaskan island in the Aleutian Islands, which has a rookery, which gives some hope to them that there may have been people on this island or there will be people on the island in the future. They don't initially see any seals, which might give them the means to survive long-term, however. Chapter 29. This chapter is about the first stage of these characters trying to survive on the island, trying to build a fire. Um, Van Wyden eventually does start a fire. He's able to use sparks drawn from a rock and using gunpowder as a tinder to get a little fire going. Um, the first act of kind of survival in the wilderness is to build this fire. Jack London, of course, did write a story all about the difficulties of starting a fire in certain environments and how essential it is to basic survival. They find out that there are seals on this island, after all, but reali and realize that they may need to stay on this island over the winter. Van Wyden realizes he has a duty to care for Brewster and ensure um, his her survival. 
Now, we're reminded in this chapter of something that Wolf Larsen accused Van Whiten of early in the story, which is basically that he has other people do everything for him. He actually says, Responsibility of this sort was a new thing to me. Wolf Larsen had been right. I had stood on my father's legs. My lawyers and agents have taken my money, care of my money for me. I had no responsibilities at all. Then on the ghost, I've learned to be responsible for myself. And now for the first time in my life, I found myself responsible for someone else. So he's laying out this progression from dependency to individualism on the ship to actually camaraderie and cooperation. But we're bothered a little bit, I think, in the, in the sense that it seems that Van Wyden sees himself as having this job of caring for Maud Brewster. And this suggests Maud Brewster is a dependent the same way Van Wyden was earlier in his life. And I'm not sure that's entirely true. I think Maud Brewster has a lot more capacity than she lets on. She's not really being allowed to fully cultivate it and achieve it because of some sexism in the narrator. Perhaps it's a little bit of Jack London's own sexism that she becomes almost a damsel in distress at some points. But London is still effective in giving her moments in which she's able to be effective, like later on when they're trying to repair the ship, um, which comes to them and they have to fix it up before they can leave. That is something she participates fully in. So it turns out she's not that helpless as, uh, as the narrator suggests at this point in the story. So chapter 30, Maud and Van Wyden work together to harvest some of the seals. Uh, he tries to shoot them at first and then he like just kind of shoots them up and they don't die and it's pretty gross so he find, he decides he just needs to club them and then you know and she kind of encourages him to go off and do this and they they go together and they start clubbing these seals then they skin them and make a shelter and this also provides them some of their food so they're in pretty good shape just for survival here because they're able to use the skills and skins to to make their their shelter Chapter 31, the two of them continue to work building up their huts and they eventually create like a fairly nice sounding two room kind of hut that they think they'll be able to use to survive the winter in Alaska. So that's all basically about them achieving a degree of, of sustainable survival in this Alaskan island. Uh, the plot changes though in chapter 32. In chapter 32, things take uh, a different path. Now, the novel could have perhaps ended here. Uh, that they survive the winter, they're found the next year, you know, and that's it. But that's not how Jack London ends the story. Instead, he ends it in a very surprising way. In chapter 32, Wolf Larson arrives alone on the ghost. In fact, what happens is they find, they see the ghost like out in the water. Uh, it's off the island a little ways. Van Wyden is terrified. He thinks the crew is there and they're going to come and kill him. So he figures he'll need to go on the ship and kill Wolf Larsen or kill members of the crew, do something to ensure his survival because he thinks they're out to kill him. Why else would they go out of their way to this island following them? He discovers that Wolf Larsen is completely alone and he decides not to shoot them. Larsen, in fact, is still being incapacitated by the strokes he's been experiencing, you know, in the earlier chapters, which causes headaches and then finally blindness. Despite the tables having turned on the two, Larson is still able to mock Van Wyden's morality. And he accuses him of basically saying that I would kill a helpless man if I felt I needed to. And you're too cowardly to do it. Um, he gets the story from Larson of what happened, though. The brother of Wolf Larson, Death Larson, who's, who captains another sailing, sealing ship called the Macedonia, they actually 
bribed and took most of Wolf Larsen's crew, bought them off, and sent Wolf Larsen adrift in his boat to die, essentially. Van Wyden leaves Larsen alone, alive, and returns to Maud Brewster at their little camp, but he took as many weapons as he from the ship as he could, basically leaving Wolf Larsen helpless and defenseless. Um, chapter 33. They're waiting for Wolf Larsen to come from their ship and join them on on the on the island, but he doesn't. And Van Wyden finally goes back onto the ghost to see what's going on, and he finds Larsen ready and waiting and willing to fight to reassert his will over whatever he can. And this is a theme that we get repeatedly through Wolf Larsen is his desire to control the space he's in. He's always happy with a relatively small space, though. And I think that's one reason why we criticized him in the earlier episode is that he's such a domineering will, but he has such low ambition. His ambition is to, like, to dominate these other sailors, to beat up people he has power over, to torment his crew. It's not a very impressive thing for someone of his talents and, and abilities. Um it turns out in this situation, his only real des will is to is his desire to die here and to take Maud and Van Wyden with him. That's all he can do. That's the only future he can really control is the future of, of these two people that he deems under his power. They eventually brawl, but the battle is inconclusive and Van Wyden again leaves the ship. In chapter 35, Maud expresses her opinion that they can repair the ghost and sail away with her. Van Whiten agrees to this, and they begin to just work on the ship. Larson protests, but he really can't do much. He's blind by this point, and he's having these strokes, and you know he's not really physically as capable as he used to be. He does try to interfere, though. Van Whiten is able to stand up to Larson in this chapter. He threatens him and says, "You know, I'm not going to let you interfere with my work on the ship." He says this to them. He says, Wolf Larson, I am unable to shoot a helpless, unresisting man. You have proven that to my satisfaction as well as your own. But I warn you now, and not so much for your own good as for mine, that I will shoot you the moment you attempt a hostile act. I can shoot you now as I stand here. And if you're so minded, just go ahead and try to clap on the hatch. So this is the, the final threat where he says, basically, if you get in the way of our attempt to repair this ship and survive, uh, it will be a final confrontation. Chapter 35. Despite great pains, Humphrey finally repairs much of the ship. The work he did, however, is destroyed by Larson the next time uh, they go there. He actually throws the masts and parts of the mast off onto the ship. They debate whether they should just murder Larson to protect their project to repair the ship, but they decide not to. Chapter 36. They go out on the boat and they search around the island for the mast. They eventually find them and they're able to bring them back and they prepare for more work. They work on the ship a few more days together, and Maud and Van Wyden both make contributions to the repairs. And they take a step in preventing Larson's activities, because he still kind of walks around blindly on the ship and complains and stuff like that. But they, they knock him unconscious, essentially. Later on, Larson visibly is having attacks and suffering. Thus, while Maud and Van Wyden are able, becoming more and more able, more and more mobile, more and more capable of surviving. It's Larson, this great force of will, who's becoming weaker and weaker and more feeble and more alone. Eventually, he'll be completely immobile with only his will, but no means to implement it. And I think Jack London, you know, does this very much on purpose. At the very time that, like at the beginning of the novel, Van Wyden and Maud, when she joins the ship, are both very helpless, completely dependent on, on Wolf Larson. 
It's the opposite at the end of the novel. Um, and then Larson doesn't really have the capacity to get any help. He doesn't want the help, certainly, but he's completely alone, right? He's completely isolated. He has no one to dominate except his own will, and that he can't even move, right? So he can't even lift his own arms. So that will doesn't go even beyond his own brain. Anyways, chapter 37, basically confined to his cabin, Wolf Larson still resists the work, and this time he does it by starting a fire. Um, the fire doesn't f destroy the ship, but it shows that he's, he's trying to assert his will to the very last moment. Chapter 38, this is the final chapter in which we see Wolf Larson alive. The three of them do kind of have ta the talk to him, and they have their kind of deathbed scene, but he's unable to move and unable to act. And what Larson at this point is merely a, a very crude expression of his of his will to of his will. It doesn't have a will to live anymore. He's just 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 will. Quote: The last line was down. Somewhere within that tomb of flesh still dwelt the soul of a man, walled by the living clay. The fierce intelligence we had known burned on, but it burned on in silence and darkness, and it was disembodied. To that intelligence, there could be no objective knowledge of a body. It knew no body. The very world was not. It knew only itself and the vastness and profundity of the quiet and the dark. So chapter 39, we get to the end of the novel. Their repairs completed, they sail away. Uh, sometime during uh, their voyage, I think it's during a storm, Larson dies and they bury Wolf Larson at sea. They give him a very short ceremony and the two survivors express their love for each other and, and that's it. The novel ends. So that's that's the story. Um, but I I do want to talk a little bit more about Maud Brewster and what we can do with this uh, very interesting character. Maud Brewster is, to be blunt, a very amazing character that's only overshadowed by the dynamic personality of our protagonist, antagonist, or antihero, Wolf Larsen. I think this is also the fate of Humphrey Van Wyden and other characters as well, such as Johnson um, or or even very interesting characters that are not necessarily the most admirable, like Mudridge. I talk about them in the in the previous episodes. Now Brewster arrives late in the story. I think it's over halfway through the story where she f arrives, and it's even later when she kind of speaks. So she arrives late to the story. She's not the main narrator, so we see her exclusively through the eyes of Van Wyden, who falls quickly in love with her, and feels for much of the story that he has a duty to protect her. So whatever. Brewster is deep down has to, we have to learn kind of through clues and things that London scatters throughout and we always get it through Van Wyden's um, rose-colored glasses. Now she's an intellectual. She's made herself successful as a writer but she's a creator. Um, now Wolf Larson is capable of creating he creates the, he invents something that's useful but he mostly wants to be a destroyer so let's say that he's a destroyer. He destroys life uh, in fact, he makes a career of just killing seals, which is kind of a, a dead-end career in a way for someone of his intelligence and capacity. And then you have Van Wyden, who is a critic. You know, he's not a destroyer, but he's a critic. And that's I, th I, I do think that London doesn't have that much respect for, or didn't have that much respect for the critic because, you know, you get hints of it throughout here. He does, though, London seems to have more admiration for Brewster, who is a writer, a, like an actual creator, a novelist. Van Wyden even at one point admits that he's unable to do what Brewster does, you know, say, you know, create. So he says, quote, I have nearly neither the aptitude nor inclination for fiction, end quote. 
Maud Brewster is also a symbol for the restoration of morality on board the ship, the ghost. And for a very brief time that Van Wyden abandons his rather flaky claims to morality. She challenges Van Wyden for his betrayal of his principles and his full acceptance of the brutal regime of Wolf Larsen. Through Brewster's eyes, Van Wyden is the typical court scholar, or even worse, a court jester, who serves those in power for the entertainment of the elite and to stroke the elite's ego. Brewster actually believes in her ethics and insists that they have real-world results. Van Wyden is, for him, morality is a game he plays with Wolf Larsen, but when push comes to shove, he's not really willing to defend his morality and his moral claims. And this is something that, that Larson knows and makes fun of him for doing. Now, we could perhaps critique the character of Brewster. Um, as on some readings, it seems to be not not so much, the, not her as a character so much, but the characterization of Brewster on London's part. Because it may seem that she's there simply to force on the plot, in a way, to push on this conflict between Larson and Van Wyden. And leads she does lead Van Wyden to escape, but it's hard to see how he would have gotten to this place without Brewster. So maybe she's just there as this plot device. Now, I don't think she is simply part of a love triangle in this way, but she's not just another example of Van Wyden's morality either. And and I did look at the Wikipedia for this, and that's what the Wikipedia sort of says about that, that she's another example of Van Wyden's kind of superior morality over Wolf Larsen's. But I think they're quite different. I think Van Wyden's morality and Brewster's morality may be on paper similar, but Brewster insists on it being real, and Van Wyden is okay, it seems, with it being compromised for survival. Larson compares the two of them, certainly. He does kind of see them as the same often, but they're actually quite diff distinct because Brewster demands that ethics lead to action and a transformation in this world. She is thus more Promethean, and that's partially because she's a writer, too. She's more Promethean than either Larson and Van Wyden. She could be read as the real Superman in the tale, not the cynic like Wolf Larson is and not the court jester, jester like uh, Van Wyden. In the final third of the novel, Brewster really does shine. She motivates the other characters. Even presumably, we want to believe, or could be true, that she almost becomes a, a subconscious beacon for Wolf Larsen to return to the story. Because what's the chances he would just show up at this island? It's, it's almost impossible, you know, unless there's almost a supernatural kind of draw uh, that, that comes through love triangles, I guess. She, though, insists on survival on the island. She suggests at sometimes killing Wolf Larsen uh, so when he gets in the way of their repairs. She learns to hunt. She learns to process shields, seals, so she's capable of learning this independence, the same thing Van Wyden learns. She becomes self-reliant, and she becomes a creator along with Van Wyden. And most importantly, it's, it's Brewster who insists on the two of them living when Van Wyden perhaps was more fatalistic about their hopes. So I think there's a way we could read Brewster as maybe the strongest of the three characters. It's, it's, it's a bit of a stretch because we get so much of Brewster through the, all, the, all we know about her, we get through the eyes of Van Wyden, and it's not a non-objective perspective. But I do think there's ways we can read this story to see her as the real um, hero of the tale, not the narrator and, and certainly not Wolf Larsen. Okay, so I guess that does it for the Seawolf. It's, it's a really 
good, great novel. It's one of my favorite of Jack London. Maybe, um, you know, I, I said before, I, I preferred White Fang to Call of the Wild, if you just were to compare those two. But I really like this story, and I've this is probably the fourth time I've, I've gone through this particular tale. It's it's really got some memorable characters and memorable scenes, and it's it really is something that, it's a novel that you look at in different ways. You look at these characters in different ways the more, more often you read it. So it's worth reading, actually, more than once, you know. So at this point, I always try to like to I like to list sort of like index themes of of each book. I do it at, at you know, in the final episode of, of each text I look at, long text anyways. And I'll do that here, too. Uh, the, now, the, the goal here is really to be able to cross reference at some point to find themes that are in this story that maybe are in other tales, maybe by Jack London or other writers. And, you know, I to try to find what are the major themes that come out most strongly in American literature and American writing. You know, what really makes American writing special and unique and a distinctive contribution to global culture? That, that's partially what uh, one of the reasons I want to do this. Um, so the first one I see here is environmental destruction. Um, it's only it's only really approached a couple times in the tale, but this the conflict between civilization and the environment is something Jack London was certainly interested in and, and wrote a lot about in in different stories. Here we see the crew of the ship smashing seals, murdering, you know, killing seals, exclusive, you know, specifically, and it's in the text too for for the for the fashionable fashion statements of of women. Now, in the end of the story, this destruction takes place again, the destruction of life, but it's for more concrete survival. So it, it, it's not judged the same way as earlier in, in the story. But the, the life of the North Pacific was brutalized by humanity for, for centuries. Uh, the sea otters were almost driven to extinction. Uh, many other fur-bearing animals were. Uh, eventually, seals were. Walruses were were hurt by whaling ships, and of course, the whales of the of the Pacific. So many species were driven to near extinction by human activity. Uh, many of them in the in the Pacific. So this is just another phase of that environmental destruction. Um, I guess survival is is just a theme here. Um, it. You know, for it seems it's supposed to. It's a theme that you think of Jack London writing a lot about because most of us have read to build, build a fire, and so we think, oh, he writes about survival, survival tales. But this is the first time we've really had characters kind of in the of all the Jack London stories we've read. You know, trying to survive. Uh, we have characters in the Yukon in Call of the Wild and White Fang, but they're you know, except for the. The characters in the Call of the Wild who really don't know what they're doing, you know, and they end up dying. We don't really, and they're not really in a position of surviving. They're just stupid and recklessly going into the wild. So this is the first time it's really come up in his, in his stories, surprisingly. But it's here. We have a whole third of the novel, which is really a survival tale, if you're interested in that kind of genre. You could say the whole story is, but, you know, they're on the ship for the first two-thirds of the novel, so they're more or less okay. At least Van Wyden is... Is he, you know, he's got Wolf Larson to deal with, but he's not surviving, you know, his wits against nature. That's the narrative in the final, final third, or a big part of the final third. Uh, once again, and I think I said this for every Jack London text we've looked at, is social Darwinism. Social Darwinism is a big theme that Jack London was interested in. He was, he, he believed 
there's a truth to the struggle for survival. He, he thought it was unfortunate and he preferred socialism, but he still believed that the real, social realities was one of conflict and, and violence. And it comes out here again. In fact, we have overt debates and discussions about the meaning of life, Darwinism and its application to human life, you know, between Van Wyden and, and Wolf Larsen. Tied to this, of course, is violence. Violence. This is an incredibly violent novel. Many of Jack London's novels were violent, especially White Fang and this one. We see people being murdered. We see people being um, beaten up. We see mutinies. We see all sorts of violence. We see threats of violence. Um, in, every, in every page, violence is o overhanging the, the tale. And that's what the main way that Wolf Larsen expresses his, his will over nature and over his crew is through violence. Uh, we have the theme of resistance in this tale as well. Um, we and I talked a lot about this in the second episode on this, in this podcast. We have moral resistance. We have resistance through escaping. We have mutiny. We have kind of these, these moral arguments. Well, I guess I already said that, but you know, there's, a, there's a variety of types of resistance given and the ones who resist the strongest are those who have the clearest idea of self-worth and morality. And the ones who resist least are those who are most willing to just kind of accept the rule of Wolf Larsen and to accept his morality fully. And we actually see Van Whiting go through different stages where at the beginning of the novel, he's resisting kind of passive, well, not even not actively through word of mouth, but not in a meaningful way that he's actually going to make good on his morality. Then we have him kind of accepting Wolf Larsen's rule. Uh, then when a Maud Brewster shows up on the ship, he starts to think, well, I can protect her. That can be the way I kind of create a cocoon of goodness on this horrible ship. Um, and then finally he runs away, he escapes. And in the end, he's willing to, you know, overtly threatens violence against his oppressor if that's what it means to survive. So we have all kinds of forms of resistance in this one character of, of Van Wyden. But other characters resist too, like Johnson leads a mutiny. So we have an example here of collective resistance. Um, labor is a theme here. Um, we see people at work, and that's much of the novel is about people at work. So as much as Wolf Larson just seems to be a tyrant who enjoys torturing people he's also trying to make a profit and make money and the, you know he wants people to work right and there's a connection between labor and worth here that wolf larson believes you know someone is valuable and independent if they can pay their way if they can work if they you know and that's one reason he didn't like van whited initially he appreciated him his mind as someone he could talk to but he didn't really value him as much as an individual because he didn't kind of pay his way. He, he, he lived a too cushy of a life. All right, social mobility and opportunity is a thing. We, we see a, a lot of examples of social mobility. We see Wolf Larson being, and several other characters really raised in poverty and trying to use work and the market and the, you know, sealing the whole, the sea voyages, all these things to move up in, in society. Now, Wolf Larson's ambitions are a little too limited, I think, but, you know, he is moving up from where he was. We see social mobility in, in the character of Van Wyden, who starts as 
basically an you know exploited minor member of the crew uh, just trying to survive it eventually gets promoted to mate so th these are examples of, of social mobility morality morality is a major theme here and I, I think the main point like Jack London is trying to make is is morality is not cannot just be something we debate it can't be something you just do in an ethics class it has to be actualizable and in certain contexts like the need to survive or facing oppression and tyranny it's hard to stand up with your morality so it you know and that's van wyden's conflict right yeah he believes this stuff but when push comes to shove he wants to live first and and this just proves wolf larson's point that morality is just a game a word game and Maud Brewster, I think, does show the possibility of it being actualizable, or at least saying it should be, if you really want to believe this stuff. We have a lot of ethnic diversity, so let's put that down as another theme here. Uh, the ethnic diversity on the ship. We have Swedes. We have a lot of Scandinavians. Um, But others as well. Um, the ship is made up of people from many different nations, and they have to actually recruit um, sailors at different points. So there's a fair amount of diversity among among the crew. So that that's we see that a common. I mean, the best example of ethnic diversity in American in an American tale of the sea is is the Pequod, which is Moby in Melville's Moby Dick, where you actually have literally the the harp the harpoonists are a Pacific Islander an African and an American Indian and a Middle Easterner. And then you have white people from all over. And there's a whole chapter in, in that book where we have this, all the different people from different countries are, are described and identified. We don't have quite something like that here, but certainly ethnic diversity is heavily hinted at here. Um, people mispronouncing Johnson's name is a good example of that, you know. Thinking his name is Jonsson or something because that—that's how it, you know, he kind of pronounced it with an accent. We have a little bit here on technology, the technology of violence, guns and clubs and things like that. The ship itself is a technology that requires cooperation. We have uh, Wolf Larsen inventing a new technology, showing his creativity. Uh, we have Maud and Van Wyden having to learn technology, learn how to sail, learn how to fix a ship. You know learn how to build a fire so technology is is throughout this novel in many ways um family F family is an interesting theme here especially the conflict between wolf and death larson and then we have characters who often tell their family history and how they ended up on this ship and this is usually a pretty tragic tale um we got van wyden who is coddled by his family and their wealth and then we have maud Brewster and Van Wyden becoming a family at the end of the, of the story, you know, becoming a, a new unit, a new cooperative unit. And we have a love triangle here. It, it's kind of one of the, it doesn't work that well, I think, because, you know, Maud's never going to fall for someone like Wolf Larson, it seems to me. Nevertheless, we do have a love triangle um, that's attempted here. Um, and there, you know, Jack London sorted this before a little bit with with Martin Eden, where there was in there it was Martin Eden and I already forgot the names of, of those characters. I think it's Liz Connolly, which is like the working class girl, and then Ruth Morse. Yeah, that was her name, was the middle class um, alternative. 
So that was a two two lady love triangle. But it's there. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of other themes. So if you you know of any really big ones I missed, there probably are big ones I missed. But you know, I, it's probably things they've been talked about. I just forgot to list them um, at this point. That's fine. But you know, make a comment and I'll I'll address that, or we can add it to to the list. Um, so that does it for the Seawolf, and it does it for the novels of Jack London. Um, we've looked at actually one, two, eight books, I think, by my count, by Jack London, and two, you know, two or three of them are more like memoir types. But you know, we we've looked at a lot of the major novels, but there's a lot more that the Library of America has not collected yet. So I don't know if they'll ever be collected, but in Till they are, we'll be done with Jack London's novels. But we're not quite done with Jack London because we have stories. We have 25 stories in this volume yet to look at. 12 uh, of his Klondike stories, which were published in the collection Son of the Wolf. Or Son of Wolf. I forget if there are the articles there, but um, they're the Klondike stories. And then we have 13 stories of just other tales of his many of them are from the pacific islands or about the pacific some are just about like urban life in san francisco so we'll do those and that will take another four episodes but for now we're kind of done with the story so that's it kind of closes a chapter in our examination of of jack london thank you so much for listening i really enjoyed looking at the sea wolf with you it's a novel i really had a lot of you know, brought me a lot of pleasure to come back and revisit this novel because I didn't, you know, I probably wouldn't have otherwise. So I, I don't know if I'll ever look at it again. Life's short. Uh, but, you know, I could, this is one of those I could see coming back to at some point. But again, thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments, you can just leave the comment on the Podbean page or, or better yet, write me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, Please share, subscribe, or rate it on iTunes. That would really help me out. But if, if not, that's fine. I'll see you next time. Thanks again for listening. Il y en avait un autre parmi eux qui a passé pour un quiqueux. Comme il était pas habile pour prendre les chars à full steam, tombant pleine face sur la traque, il a pas pu se rendre au Klondike.